Today we'll be talking about some of the factors to consider before starting an automation project. So plenty to hear, plenty to discuss. Join us. Hello everybody and welcome to Industrial Automation. It doesn't have to. In case you're new to our program, I'm Brandon Ellis and I'm your host and also the owner of Elatech. Before we start today's episode, I just want to ask that you consider hitting the follow button and the subscribe button, depending upon the platform you're listening upon. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you enjoy what you hear, please go to the show page and scroll to the bottom. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Now that we've got the marketing out of the way, I want to say thanks for tuning in. So let's get started with today's episode. Hey guys, Industrial Automation doesn't have to. Season three. Season three already. Episode three. It is. Uh, so today we're talking about a few things, but I wanted to first, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, Beth. Hello, Brandon. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Yeah. So <laughs> we're for glad us, you're it, here. <laughs> it's good morning for us. Uh, we had a visit that I was, I just really enjoyed. Um, uh, so I want to start out by doing a quick thank you and shout out to uh, Wilson Meyer with the chamber, Knoxville chamber, who uh, coordinated a visit uh, with uh Knox County Mayor Glenn Jacobs uh, and his staff, Jane Jolly, uh, was there as well and a couple others. And so they came by and visited Elatech, and we got a chance to talk to them about some things, talk to them about some robots and some of the stuff that we do, but primarily some of the training mm-hmm. that we do to try to help empower our community and uh, both large and, and medium and small manufacturers in this area, specifically in Knox County, Tennessee. And so... I just I've had the opportunity to speak with with Mayor Glenn Jacobs a couple of times, and I'm just really always impressed with his uh, insights, yeah, uh, his perspectives. Uh, he's had a rough, rough. Every mayor in the United States of America has had a rough, you know, last year, year and a half mm-hmm. as we've gone through this pandemic. And he's for us, he's handled it. I think uh, as best as could possibly be expected. Yep. Um, you know, there's always hindsight's always twenty twenty, and he would. He's probably doing agree a with phenomenal that. job. Yeah, so uh, we were grateful to him and all he does for our community. But uh, also, it was just great to have him here. He's a lot of fun. He's uh, he's very tall. Yeah, I, I don't know if everybody. You need to head over to our uh, social pages and see the yeah. pictures because uh, he's he he's a head and shoulder above everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't it doesn't take a lot uh, to be head and shoulders over me. Uh, I'm I'm of average size, but um, I made sure not to stand next to him right. <laughs> uh, during the photo. But uh, yeah, we had we had a good time. We had a, a lot of good insight and good good constructive uh, conversation. So thank you again to to Wilson for putting that together, yes. and and to the mayor and 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 for his staff uh, for for coming out here and taking some time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that said. What's our title for today? Oh, today's title is Industrial Automation. It doesn't have to be vague. Vague. Viguity. The thing that problems stem from. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we're, I'm going to start off with some questions. Fire match you there, Brandon. Okay. So before folks invest in automation of a process, what are some commonly overlooked aspects that need to be considered? Well, automation of a process. So automation of a process can be a couple of things, uh, you know, custom machine builds, custom equipment and stuff like that. But but in this case, uh, the thing that comes to mind for me is end users. And a lot of our listeners, I think, are, are manufacturing end users of different sizes uh, that are either the large folks that are listening to kind of, you know, hear what's going on down to the, the small to medium sized manufacturers that are you know, still maybe very manual uh, with their with their processes, and and pro- probably are being uh, every bit as affected by the labor shortage as even the the largest folks. Um, but the larger folks have deeper deeper pockets, mm-hmm. and so they can they've got money to do a lot of stuff. And so for the small to medium sized manufacturers uh, that really could util- utilize automation within the plant, sometimes it's not always easy to get to. Um, but the thing that most people, and they, you know, as far as automation, the first thing a lot of folks think about is, is robots. Yeah. And, and more specifically, 
in the current news, I guess, uh, as far as popularity, is collaborative robots. And so there's a there's been a push to use collaborative robots for quite some time. And we've talked about that quite a few times in previous podcasts. We you even started a drinking game with yes me. yes <laughs> uh, because I, I would commonly say I've not seen a collaborative robot used collaboratively and that means no guarding whatsoever, uh, not even light scanners or anything and that's and the reason I make that that point is because that's how they're marketed that's how they're sold that's one way and then the other half of the coin is you don't need you can do this in house you don't need any outside help from integrators or machine builders or anything like that you can just just let me sell you one here i'll do a quick demo and show you see i can you know do direct teach and teach the points and then it's all you and what a lot of folks have learned is there, there's more to it than that because you do have to do a safety analysis. You do have to make sure there's e-stops in place and that the system can be rendered safe. You do have to make sure the tooling is engineered in such a way that it makes sense. Um, but I've heard a lot of complaints from folks that have – I had one customer tell me, we don't allow any collaboratives in the plant. Oh, really? And I said, well – why? I'm not going to push you. I'm not trying to sell you on collaboratives, but I'm, why? And the answer was, they're way too slow, much slower than a person. And then they, uh, they're they not as accurate, you know, just all these kind of things. Uh, but primarily, they're slow. And so why are they slow? Well, let's talk about some of the reasons why you can't use a collaborative robot. Okay. And so... One of the things, and these are things that are commonly overlooked, uh, collaborative robots are typically used uh, where we have a person, typically a person, that's performing a repetitive type task. It's not extremely complex. It's not very hard to do. Maybe it's just moving parts. Maybe it's picking a part from one, one position and loading it into a machine and then picking a part out of that machine and you know, scanning it or, you know, holding it in front of a vision sensor or another sensor. And then if it's good, put it in one box. If it's bad, put it in another box. I mean, those are great collaborative style projects or so it would seem. But what people fail to consider really comes down to the four reasons to automate. Yeah. Brandon's brandology. That My brandology. Okay. Let's see. See, I only have a couple of buttons here, and they're not labeled. They're still not labeled. No. Season three, <laughs> and I still have not labeled them. Uh, but let me try that again. Brandology. So, yeah, the four reasons to automate. Quality consistency, decrease in cycle time or increased production, a reclassification of labor, flexibility, quick setup. So, again, those four reasons, you don't have to do all four, but one needs to be your goal. But you have to consider... All four, because it can be a trade-off. If I'm my focus is quality and consistency, mm-hmm. or my focus is reclassification of labor, that doesn't mean I'm going to also have necessarily increased production and decreased cycle time. Because there's trade-offs. There's trade-offs. Okay. So why is there a trade-off? And that's the biggest one. Cycle time. It's slow. That's the biggest thing I've heard. Collaborative robots are slow. They're way slower than a person. Well, that's because you're having to slow them down so much, probably, I'm assuming, you're slowing them down so much because of the shape of the tooling, because of the cycle. You know, you can't get them, you have to slow them down to be safe. Because if the tooling is shaped like you on video can see, I'm holding up a ballpoint pen. If that's my tooling, be it a screwdriver or some type of a probe or even fingers on a gripper, uh, if I move that quickly, the PSI calculation, pounds per square inch, is what you have to do on your tooling. When it impacts something, is it putting all the force at a single point or a small area, across a small area? Or is it, you know, like a, a whole, you know, a large light object, like a cardboard box or something that's empty? So now all of a sudden the force is, is uh, distributed across a larger area. So if it comes up against a person or an object, that force is dispersed. But if it's all coming to a point, the, the pounds per square inch, because the poundage is the same, but the square inch part is very small. So that means it's, it, it will impel you. And so you're forced to move slow. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one thing. Uh, and then that, that, of course, is interpreted as it doesn't meet our cycle time requirements. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, the size of the parts does come into play. I mean, if a part weighs too much, it just weighs too much. You you can't you, you can't, can't take away from the the, the payload capability. Okay. Yeah. And that's true with industrial robots just as well as collaboratives. They lift what they can lift. Yeah. Now, also, though, if you if you are moving able to move within your cycle time, but the part weighs a lot, the acceleration comes into play. Oh. Because collaborative robots have sensors, four sensors at each joint. Uh, that's what makes them collaborative. It's so that force, they, F-O-R-C-E. F-O-R-C-E. Okay. Force. Okay. And so what we're doing is monitoring how much force at every angle. So it may not be just the front coming in. It may be coming across from the side. Okay. Or hitting here or any, any – because they're designed and marketed to work right between people without guarding. Mm-hmm. So they have these sensors, but the sensors are are great. They're very sensitive, but they're not sensitive enough to ensure no damage. Because the fact of the matter is, even if you and I are working side by side and I hit you with this accidentally, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. And so the the difference is is I have the I'm a human. <laughs> and so when when I when I poke you with a pen and I hear you squeal, hopefully <laughs> Hopefully, my reaction is to stop doing that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and robots might not react that quickly. Uh, the other thing is robots are just moving. Yeah. And even if you've got vision and stuff like that in places, it's not like a human where I can say, you know, sorry, I didn't see you there, which means that the other part of the times I could see you. Robots didn't never see you, uh, even with vision. Now, new systems are coming uh, that make that a little bit more that they see. Okay. Uh, but for today's to, for today's podcast, <laughs> we're going to say that most robots don't see. Uh, and then also there's more cost in that. So getting back to automating a process and, and using this, you know, the collaborative, why can't you use the collaborative? It's too slow. It has to move too slow in order to maintain safety. And or to to be able to move the part that I'm moving, I have to in order for it to maintain safe, it can't move the part because I have to drop the accelerations and the deceleration so low because it can't tell the difference between accelerating this this part, and that's assuming the parts can be picked up by the robot. So to that I say, well, just guard it, and they're all like, ah, oh, what's well, the if point? I'm going to guard it, what's the point? Yeah. I might as well use an industrial robot. Well, now, hang on a second. That's what I want to go through for this question. Okay. Is, is what are the benefits that you still realize besides not guarding it? Because, get your shot glasses up. Okay. I have never seen a clever robot that's not guarded. So that money's being spent. It's either a safety light scanner, maybe some kind of light curtains, or some, you know, less substantial guarding. So put some less substantial guarding up. Hard guarding, in addition to the to the light scanners or something, it's not going to kill your project, and then you can go faster. Okay. Well, okay. Some collaborative robots you can go faster. Some of the most popular brands of collaborative robots, at least popular in the United States, cannot. Okay. Why? Well, those sensors, those force sensors, okay. uh, cannot be. Largely or completely disabled. Oh, they're just going to be, the force sensor is going to be what it is. Yeah. And so when you start moving it faster uh, to get your cycle time, it may be the acceleration of just the mass of the robot itself and not so much a part, you know, that's that's causing it to think that it might be colliding with something. Now, there's one robot line that I know from, from immediate experience that we can grossly reduce and override. We have to do this manually, but we can override uh, the collaborative nature of it. Oh, who's that? That's Hanwha Robotics. Oh, okay. Uh, we've done that. And so we can get some really good cycle times, but you're going to have to put some guarding around. Yeah, you have to. So so if you guard it, why not use industrial, Brandon? You know, that's the question. You know, industrial robots and collaborative robots generally uh, have – you can actually, we talked about that on a podcast, you can actually get an industrial robot for less expensive, less expensive than a collaborative because you're paying for those sensors. However, with the Hanwire, and, and I'm not trying to sell you guys on this, it's just a fact, with with our, with the Hanwire Robotics, which is why we pick them up as a distributor and a partner and an integrator, is the return on investment is so great. Mm-hmm. And that's because the price is so 
wonderful. Uh, so it's hard to get all the functionality from a collaborative robot and the flexibility, meaning that I can we can go in and largely disable the force guided sensors and make the thing non-collaborative. Okay, it's going to run and it's not going to stop. And if it does stop, it's going to treat that stop like an industrial robot would treat it, which means a collision. Okay, not a safety stop, a collision. So collision is what industrial robots do when we sense a collision. We've come, you know, that we've had a crash. We call that a crash, which means the tooling's come up against something that's not supposed to, or something wasn't supposed to be there, or something like that. But it's tooling against tooling, or guard against guard, or tooling against machine, something like that. Not human. Okay. Because we have guards. Yes. And so to be able to take a collaborative and convert it into that, to where it will operate like an industrial robot means that we can start getting those cycle times because our safety, our safety, our risk analysis, our safety uh, audit changes because as soon as we had guarding, all kinds of things change. Uh, we can start doing a lot more. So add some guarding. It's not that expensive to add guarding. Uh, and, and, and again, you don't have to totally disable those. Uh, usually we'll leave them at the top levels and we're able to do a bit better collision. Uh, collision detection? Detection. Okay, Thank you. okay. <laughs> detection. Um, yeah, because, because you want to – now you're talking about saving the tooling, saving the robot, saving the tooling. Guarding can be replaced, but you don't want to break your tooling. And so to be able to now adjust it so that from a collaborative standpoint, we're not looking for human – Safety. We're looking for tool safety, increased tool safety. That's a benefit you get with collaboratives that you can't really change with industrials. What we do with industrials is we we put in their payload. So how much does the tooling weigh with the part? How much does the tooling weigh without the part? And then we do those calculations, and it does its own sensing usually. Okay. You can go in and modify those, but that's more of an advanced thing to do. But for us, it's sliders. Okay. Oh, from whom? Well, I mean, it's on the sliders. It, it's just how you adjust it with little oh, sliders. Oh, okay. I was thinking smart shift robotics. <laughs> no, I'm no, no. with sliders in there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Not mechanical. Uh, on the pendant. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. And so uh, with with my experience in other robots, as you go in and teach payloads and stuff, you've got to go into some very select menus and things of that nature, which brings me to another point. I'll get to that point in a second. Okay. So so right now, you, you can take a collaborative robot and guard it. Get your cycle times. And the benefit, number one benefit, is you can now use the collaborative nature. If if it's a model like the Hanwha that you're able to dis disable this. And again, from my experience, I don't know of anybody else that can really do that. The other thing they have is collision mitigation. We use collision mitigation or, or anti-trap. And what this is, is if there is, let's go back to non-guarded collaborative deal. If the robot does come up against a person... Most robots, as soon as they sense the, the collision with a person, will put the brakes on, lock up, and that's where they are. And their arm is, is held in that position in a rigid stance. Collision mitigation is something you can enable that Hanwha offers as a built-in feature, which we love. Uh, we keep it enabled. And it's meant for, if it comes up and hits a person, for one second, it goes into that direct teach floating posture which means the robot can relax, is allowed to relax off the target, but a person can intuitively push it away. Okay. And they just easily push it away, and then it locks in, in place there and goes into full-on, you know, locked safe mode. And so it's meant to not trap you up against. That's that's probably one of the number one safety issues or, or, or incidents that I've heard of is is with, with maintenance folks and, and even integrators that – just get a little too comfortable, but they're inside with the robot. Usually there's two people inside the robot cell oh, and oh. they're doing a maintenance type deal, but one of them has the dead man switch and the other one is just hands-free and the robot zips around and does something there and pins them up against the side and the other person lets go of the dead man switch, but you know, it wasn't them. And so they might not have reacted as quickly or something. And so now they're pinned up against a wall. <clears throat> I've talked to a couple of people, unfortunately, that I know a couple of people that have been through that and have been hurt. Oh, wow. And by robots. I mean, they're really dangerous and they need to be respected. Even collaboratives need to be respected. But anyway, so uh, the anti-collision, 
that serves to let people push it away, if you're in a guarded situation, you can still use that to save your tooling. Okay. And then also for recovery. So recovery of a crash. Crashes happen. It's automation. Machines are going to need maintenance. Machines are going to crash. Mm -hmm. It's just going to happen. And so what you're trying to do is make it to where you can just, you know, recover from the crash. The tooling's not broken or damaged, so you can start again. Because if you can't start again, that's called a downtime event. Yeah, I don't want that. And then the recovery is also a downtime mm -hmm. event. And so it's a collaborative robot. With industrial robots, typically, from my experience and many others, is when they come up and they have a collision and crash, uh, they lock the brakes right there. And so when you're trying to take the teach pendant uh, and jog it back to, to move it off of the, the collision, every time you power it up, it comes on for just a second, it senses that opposite force, realizes it's still in the middle of a collision, and falls right back out. And it may move a millimeter. Oh, my goodness. And and you just have to keep going, click, 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 and let it move out a millimeter until it, it finally relaxes enough. Well, the collision mitigation would overcome that. And you wouldn't have all that back and forth, back and forth, until you can finally get it free to where you can keep it enabled and jog it off of the out of the collision zone. And so um, that's one thing that you get with a collaborative robot. The other thing is, uh, just in general, uh, not not wrecks and crashes, but the other thing that happens so all the time with industrial robots and and probably collaborative robots, I think, is um, reteaching points. So anybody can can learn to use a teach pendant on an industrial robot. It's not necessarily the most intuitive. It's according to the brand you've got. But it can be done. And the problem with most maintenance folks, and if you're a maintenance manager, plant manager, HR manager, you, you probably are, are dealing with this, is, is you, you have to kind of keep your chops up, <laughs> especially in most manufacturers. They've got different brands. But with a oh. teach pendant, you have to know what menus to go to, what buttons to push, more importantly, what buttons not to push uh, to be able to, to move that. And from, from my own experience, working with multiple robots, it's just like working with multiple PLCs. I have to step back for a second and think, oh, wait a minute, this is this brand. It's not that brand. And that brand, I did that that way. That was what the menu was. And this one, this is a different menu, that kind of stuff. And if you forget that stuff because you don't, you know, I haven't had to work on that road. That's the, ah, we, we, you know, we never have to work. If it's a good, if it's, if it's a good product, you never have to work on it, which means your maintenance guys. are going to forget. forget mm -hmm. any training that they've got. And so that takes longer to polish points, you know, put them, uh, do, do touch ups on points and things of that nature. It also takes longer on recoveries and those kind of things, troubleshooting. With a collaborative robot, it's pretty easy to remember how to grab the end of the robot and move it where you want. Yeah. And and click teach. I mean, that that's pretty intuitive. And so what does that mean? That means the less time from a maintenance standpoint, but it also means less need for recurring training. Uh honestly, a bit lower skill set requirement because if you're not having skill sets, you teach a skill set, but if you don't use it, you're gonna forget. You forget it. Yeah. And so you if but it but if it's an easy skill set, if it's simplified, it's a lot easier to to remember and 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 grab grab on again. So all these are reasons to. I don't buy into why use a collaborative if I've got to guard it because of all these different things because of the direct teach because honestly that's the reason you wanted to use it anyway. Oh, for the so the direct teach where I can grab the end of the robot and move it where I want to go or teach a path or whatever we're going to do. That's that's the cool that's the cool sauce that everybody likes about a, a collaborative. They're easy to use. So, goodness, don't let that stop you. All those benefits go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. Just because of guarding? <laughs> because you need to increase cycle time and you need to stick a little guard around it. Mm -hmm. Just guard it. So what about, what factors are typically forgotten with vision? Vision. Yes, because you mentioned vision with the robots, but vision in general. Yeah. Uh, vision, vision is a bit of a magic. Um, it's an art, uh, for sure. And the reason is, is, is <laughs> that's one skill set that a lot of people feel like there needs to be a better, a human element should apply more. You know, I didn't talk much about it, but in robots, we've talked about, go back and look at past, our past 
podcast, we talked about the wiggle jiggle. Yeah. And that's where, that's another thing on robot processes where if you're just picking it up and putting it here and that kind of thing. But if you have, if the operator picks it up, does this and drops it down, or more importantly, they're grabbing a part, uh, loading a part into a machine and removing a part, and they're able to put two hands in and drop one while they pull one, you're not going to match that cycle time. Unless you have two robots. Yeah, yeah. And so those are the kind of things. But it's those little human elements. Being able to pick it up, glance at something like this, you know, yeah, it looks good, and then drop it in the bucket. Well, a robot's going to have to pick it up. Or what if their tooling has, you know, um, I'm doing this on video. I'm going to take this pin, and without touching it with my other hand, I'm going to move it. That'd be hard for a robot to do. Yeah, I'm going to rotate it around. It's stuff we do because we have hands yeah. and fingers. Yeah, but how many fingers do it, does a the gripper usually yeah. have? <laughs> a human can twirl it like a baton, yeah. and a robot can't. And so you have to, as a as a production engineer, as a as a manufacturing engineer, you have to watch your process and really think how would I do this to the robot, uh, and those kind of things. Well, vision, we tend to look at things with our eyes and say, well, I can see it. Why wouldn't the vision system be honest? Yeah, yeah. And the human eye is much, much more advanced and capable than any industrial vision system, any vision system, even your cell phone. The human eye can focus on things in an instant and things of that nature. Now, it might not be able to zoom in, especially for those of us who, you know, have to don the reading glasses and things of that nature. But, you know, in its prime, it's pretty doggone awesome. And so vision systems, you can't just assume they're, if you can see it, they can see it, that it can see it. So there's a, there's a few things to consider there. Lighting is one of the biggest things. Ambient lighting. Even if you use the light that's on the, on the system, uh, on the camera or using external lighting, something like that, uh, and you get it all working perfectly, and then all of a sudden a light bulb goes out or they replace, you know, high-intensity discharge with fluorescence, and although we can't tell it, the fluorescents are actually at 60 hertz, 60 times a second, flashing on and off and on and off. And some, according to the quality of the bulbs and the fixtures, some are worse than others. Well, the vision system can pick that up. And so all of a sudden you end up with bright and dark, according to when we snap the, the picture as far as the aperture. And so you need to use usually uh, integrated lighting or you know lighting associated with the vision system. But then you got to worry about angles of light and things of that nature. But even if you're using external lighting, it can be influenced by the the environment. So just because you have it set up and working in one place, one environment, you move it to another environment, move it to another part of the plant, move it to the plant. Or I've had seen systems where we put it in, had it working perfectly. It worked perfectly for years. And then all of a sudden they call and say it's not working anymore. And, uh, what we learn is that they installed a skylight. Oh. And so now we have natural light. And, or like three weeks out of the year, there's a there's a window or a hole in the in the side of the warehouse or something where the a ray of sunshine. Goodness gracious. <laughs> we had that happen where a ray of sunshine will come in and just go slowly across the, the machine. And, and it's just one time a year that it and, does it. <laughs> yeah. And, and it happens and nobody can figure out why. And by the time you get there, it's gone. And, uh, you know, it just freaks out a certain time, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, these are things that change. So you have to be able to control the lighting. So the easy way to do that is put a shroud around it, put some kind of a bark, dark, box around it, something like that. Uh, there's there's dome lights. There's different types of lighting that can come into play. But a lot of times that's not considered. The other thing is if I've, I've seen is people trying to take a vision system to tell, uh, distinguish between colors. Oh. And if you're if it's a very different color, so colors, well, even grayscales. So if it's black or if it's white mm-hmm. is much easier than – you know, all the grayscales in between. All the shades yeah. of gray that yeah. are so in between. So is it white or is it off-white? Yeah. If you're doing that with a black and white sensor, which means we're looking at contrast. If you're doing colors, though, it's Roy G. Biv and more because vision systems can actually see in the ultraviolet spe- spectrum, the infrared spectrum, things of that nature. And so uh, what that means is they're very exact, 
probably comparatively to humans, because I guarantee uh, that the, and people listening have done this, where where you say, "Well, I see, I see green. It looks green to me," and you say, "Well, no, it's gray," mm-hmm. or you know, "I see brown," and you see gray or green or something like that. And so we've got these, uh, even for humans, where it's hard to distinguish between blue. Mm-hmm. Well, for a vision system, it's not. It's all digital. It's all values. And so if it sees blue and there's a variation in the next blue. Oh, it just rejects It's going to say that's not blue anymore. And there are variations that happen in production, uh-huh. especially with colors. Colors are hard to to keep up with. So if you're trying to say, I want to make sure it's this color of blue, uh, then maybe you need to change your perspective and say, I want to make sure that it's not you know, red. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Uh, or yellow or something like that. And instead of, I want to make sure that it's blue and it's got to be this color of blue because sometimes that gets very difficult to do because of variation, not because of the vision system, because of variations, you can open that up a little bit, but if you open it up too much, then suddenly you kind of risk, well, blue, have the, a green in there. The blue kind of look like a green. <laughs> and so, um, so why is so blue and green? Roy G. Biv, you remember that from eighth grade science? Uh, no, <laughs> those are the primary colors. Okay, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and that's the colors of the rainbow that we see of the rainbow that the human eye can see, and so in that order. And so the R and the V are the farthest apart. Violet, which is purple, and red are the farthest apart. But Roy G, G is green, Biv, B is blue. So green and blue are very similar in the spectrum. And so they have that kind of washover that we see. If you are you do a lot of graphics design and stuff, and so you see where it kind of just uh, the rainbow effect of all the colors. And so as the color spectrum goes, you go from green to blue or blue to green, one direction or the other. And so those variations are very difficult to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got to take that into consideration. Uh, curvature, curvature, and what we mean is the surface is curved. So I always imagine, you know, like a a container, mm-hmm. a pill bottle or drink bottle, cola bottle or any kind of bottle, Clorox wipe bottle, something like that. And and if you're trying, especially if you're trying to do optical character recognition, we call that OCR, uh, as it curves on the surface, an O doesn't start looking so much like an O anymore. A C can start looking kind of weird. An R, anything can start looking weird, unless it's like an I. But it, an I can actually disappear and move in with the other, the other parts according to how, how, how you know the shape of the of how how intense the curvature. So those kind of things come into play. So just because you can see it doesn't mean it'll be able to see it, especially if you're trying to read it. You have to take into consideration your tools and things of that nature. And then, and then finally, um, uh, not finally, but one other thing is, is field of view, resolution. Uh, so resolution, we measure that in pixels. And if you own a cell phone and if you paid attention at all to the colors, I mean, sorry, the, the, the camera, uh, you know, mine's got 12 billion pixels or whatever they are now, four cameras, five Mine cameras, has five. Yeah. <laughs> And, it, and, you know, but, but those are built, those cameras are really powerful and they make large files, uh, data files. Um, and it's because they have large resolutions, which you measure in pixels. And, and they need to because they're there to record life. Industrial vision systems can be high resolution, but usually they're pretty expensive. Uh, cost goes up based upon resolution. But why would you need high resolution? Well, if you have low resolution... And what that looks like is you're taking a, a large area of, of colors or or if it's black and white contrast, and you're kind of taking an average and turning that into a square. And so if you want to know what that looks like on low resolution, for those who are lucky enough to have ever played with an Atari or ColecoVision or even the first Nintendos, uh, you know, you know, Mario had had was a little blocky in mm-hmm. his complexion, our complexion, and um, and so was the gorilla and Donkey Kong and stuff like that, and that's low resolution. Uh, vision system works the same way, and so if you need to 
see something really close and see contours really smooth and stuff like that, then you may need low resolution or high resolution even at, you know, being really close to the part. But usually we go high resolution when we need to see a greater field of view. So we need to see more of it. Instead of looking in and seeing a very small area, we need to see a larger area. So you have to take that resolution and increase that. Well, just because you increase the resolution doesn't mean you're done. You still have lenses. So just like on your a regular camera, good old cameras, not camera phone cameras, but they, they have mechanical lenses. Mm-hmm. And so they have zoom lenses and things of that nature. They get fancy too. <laughs> yeah, they get expensive. Yes. <laughs> and so that's the things that I think are, are typically forgotten about with vision because here's a general cost for vision system. Okay, but we didn't consider that we're trying to see this across, you know, a two-foot range of interest, and uh, we need to add a zoom lens, we need to double your resolutions and all that. Well, now all of a sudden your vision system's twice as much. Yeah. Uh, We need external lighting. We can't use the internal lighting because it's too large of an area. Or it's, you know, we're we're washing out wherever we're looking at from the direction with the built-in lighting. So we need to do indirect lighting with external vision. We need to shroud the thing. I mean, all those are just adding to the cost. And so all that's fine if you know that when you're budgeting. If you start into a project kind of haphazardly, that's what I've seen, is the money starts going way beyond budget and people don't like that. Yeah. And uh, and then the ROI calculations go out the window and that kind of thing. And so that's that's one of the things. The, the other thing is cybersecurity. Believe it or not, with a vision with, system. Yeah, I bet you could hack into that. Well, you, it's a, it's about <laughs> hacking, but a lot of uh, so your vision system is just a camera with a little bit of memory on it. And as long you know, if you're, it's according to how you're using it. Okay, you can use a a vision system kind of like a just a discrete sensor. And so it takes, it snaps a picture and it gives us an output or a result of good or bad, pass or fail. And then I don't care about the image anymore. I'm going to take another one, wipe that one out, let it go. We don't need any kind of thing. But a lot of folks want to keep the images. Yeah. Well, most cameras on the market are the way they've always dealt with that is a picture is a file. If you've ever taken a picture with your, your phone, it creates a file. You email that file. You do things with files. And so there's there's applications that do things with files. In this case, a photo is a file. And so when you're transferring that, you have to use a protocol, a language, that computers understand to transfer that. And we refer to that as file transfer protocol, or FTP. And so a lot of uh, camera manufacturers support FTP. And so they you can take that image and if you have a FTP server set up, uh, that'd be on a PC or some type of a PC-based server, it can FTP that over. FTP uses a specific port on the, the network. It's port 21, typically. There's a secure SFTP, which is a secure file transfer protocol, which is a bit more secure. But from an IT standpoint, uh-uh. It doesn't, it doesn't cut it. Oh, yeah? So FTP absolutely doesn't cut it because if it can transfer through port 21 a file, anything that oh, gets on that side can use that ways. same port. Okay. And so there's things you can do to try and keep a, get away from that. But a lot of IT folks, four, five, six years ago, IT departments started locking out, locking down port 21 to make that port unusable. FTP needs port 21 to work. So now you got to kind of consider that as well. If you want some really cool... If you're running into that and you want some really cool concepts of what we may be able to do to help, uh, our IOTA can give some capabilities. Okay. Uh, but um, that's all I'll say about that. But but when you're dealing with that on a camera system, you have to make sure that if you want to store those images that you have a way to do it. Yeah. And right now it requires FTP. And if it doesn't meet with your cybersecurity requirements in your plant, you're going to have to rethink it. Yeah. Okay. Rethink it before you start. Not not when you're in the middle of yeah, the project. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you want to move on to the next? Sure. Okay. Uh, pre-pandemic estimates by IDC, International Data Corporation, say that manufacturing is the biggest spender on IoT technologies with almost $200 billion wow. spent for discrete and process manufacturing. 
That is a lot of money. A lot of money. I don't have a ching-ching in here. <laughs> I don't think we did. Oh. I got, Whoa, that's loud. I, yeah, it's loud, <laughs> loud for us. We'll make sure it's not loud for them. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that... Uh, $200 billion. Oh. It's still loud. My goodness. I'm sorry. I probably missed with those buttons when uh, the last <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. Uh, I don't understand why it's so loud. But anyway, uh, I don't have a cha-ching, but cha-ching. <laughs> so with $200 billion spent, and that was before uh, the pandemic, what are some of the biggest problems that you found when manufacturers implement an IoT system? Uh, I mean, that's a lot of money to be spent. You know, IoT has gone through a lot, I believe. I've watched. Um, so, Elotech is a, is a distributor, a regional distributor for, for products where, you know, we offer integration services for the products we sell as well, and that's more regional. I just mentioned our IOTA, and when I say our IOTA, it's our IOTA. I invented it. We developed it uh, in 2014. It was called the Data Commander. And we changed it to the IOTA because the IOTA has more capabilities. Um, and it's I-I-O-T-A. IOTA, yeah. Double I. It stands for in Industrial Internet of Things Appliance. So it's an acronym. We like acronyms. No, we do. But that said, uh, it's, it's a large portion. It's a global portion of our business. Uh, we sell IOTAs to various and sundry uh, industries across the entire planet. Um, but we have seen... And all of IoT has seen a really a decrease uh, in spending through the pandemic. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that we were seeing, I'm sure we were seeing a downward trend in IoT anyway coming into the pandemic. Because honestly, uh, and that was pre, yeah, pre-pandemic numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because honestly, there were, you know how I'm hard on marketing folks. There was a lot of high-dollar, high-budgeted marketing rhetoric out there that wasn't very good, very accurate. It was telling people what they wanted to hear, and people were allowed to hear what they want to hear. And uh, so there was a whole push for the spending on there uh, in that. Um, so I believe that that folks finally got to the point where they had been mar- – they were, they were just kind of done with all the marketing and ready to just – let's just shelve that for a while. Uh, it, especially if they've implemented it and it wasn't really giving them what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, they, it was okay pre-pandemic to just say, you know what, let's shelve that. The reason, do you remember from? Yes. The reason to have an IoT system is to make educated business decisions. That's right. Yay, Beth. <laughs> um, yeah, everybody hear that and think. Let that sink in. Purpose of an industrial IoT system, the only reason to have it is to allow the organization to make educated business decisions, to figure out how to better grow their business, if it to empower them. Mm-hmm. And if they if it, if it's not going to do that, or the the most horrible concept is if it's going to give you data that's erroneous. That's not accurate. That's misleading. You need to turn it off. Mm-hmm. You would be better off not paying attention to that. And it's frustrating when when you're looking at it. And you're like, there's no way this could be right. Now, sometimes it is right. <laughs> but if you know and can prove that it's not right, then then you don't need to be. It, it's not giving you what. Yeah. It's not giving you the payback that you deserve. Because one piece of bad data. Just ruins the whole batch, doesn't it? It's the the adage of one bad apple spoils the yeah. whole bunch. And so, if you have one bad of one 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 piece of suspect data, then the entirety of the data should be suspect. And so, I think largely the industry was just tired of being talked at from a marketing standpoint, from a sales standpoint, from a a promise standpoint. Everybody was going to give you the world. Uh, it was going to do all this stuff. And they always start, well, nowadays they start with beautiful dashboards. But they never get down to the brass tacks of the data and things of that nature. And we, we've got a podcast on on that where we went into that. So I'm not going to belabor that. But I think we were already on a downward twin, but tr- uh, trend because I believe that a lot of people were just desensitized to that or just over it. And they were ready to spend their money on other things. Mm-hmm. This was coming into unbeknownst to any of us, a pandemic. 
During the pandemic, everyone was scrambling. Plants were shut down, some forced to be shut down, some having to be shut down. Uh, smaller and uh, small to medium enterprise type manufacturers couldn't, the smaller ones especially, just had to stop because like in the olden days when <laughs> the stores closed because of the flu, you know, they don't have, an, they've got too many employees out because of sickness and, and they can't, they just don't have enough people there to, to run the ship. And so they have to just shut down. We're just going to shut down. I mean, even the school systems uh, initially did that. They didn't teach remote. They weren't ready for that. They just shut down. Yeah. And so that similar stuff happened to manufacturing. And then was this push to do remote work and all this kind of thing and try to keep a plant running. And if you didn't have those things in place, suddenly you realize, ah, there's a lot to this IoT, not just making business decisions, but to know what the heck's going on. So I can decide where to where to put people and how I can do it safely and all this kind of thing. And 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 so I, I believe that during the pandemic, it really bottomed out as far as spending because everybody was, uh, it was just total upheaval, um, trying to decide how to keep running and how to keep moving. And then as we began to come out of, through 2021, come out of the pandemic, all the way up to this new, these new variants and stuff like that, uh, they're causing all kinds of weird stuff now. But uh, we, you began to see IoT starting to come, make a comeback, start more renewed interest, I should say, renewed interest in spending, renewed budgets, but but cautious. Yeah, kind of like what we were talking about with the automation. I've spent money on this; it didn't work out just like I wanted. Yes. So what did people forget? What did they forget? What are the most common things well, that you've the, seen that they forget? Of, to, of late? Yeah. Or, or back or then? I, th- I think now would be more yeah. relevant. Um, honestly, there's a lot of folks that are really today hanging on to those failed attempts. Okay. Uh, they spent that, what did you say, $200 billion? Yeah. <laughs> they spent you know, their portion of the $200 billion and it didn't get them where they needed to be. And again, pre-pandemic, you could say, turn it off. We'll get to that later. We'll still have somebody go with a tick sheet and Yeah, we're just going to go back to our old ways. We just got production to make. We got people to move. And then now all of a sudden, then we went through a pandemic where just everything was in upheaval. And now they're realizing we got we to gotta get stuff back. And so um, the, the biggest travesty I see right now is saying, well, we spent this huge amount of money. Can we fix it? And sometimes you just can't. I mean, we work with our customers to try and look through the bits and pieces and see what we can and can't use. And we try to use as much, utilize as much as we can. But you have to get to a point where you ask yourself, if trying to maintain this failed attempt to keep pieces and parts, if doing that inhibits you from actually getting you to the goal that you set out to get to in the beginning... It might be time just to close close the book on that chapter and start a new chapter. And and that that hurts. Mm. It hurts from a financial standpoint and certainly from a pride standpoint. Yeah. Nobody wants to spend money, but I mean, unfortunately there's a lot of people out there that have purchased cars that are lemons and they dealt with it and dealt with it and dealt with it and finally they just had to say, I gotta gotta get another car. Mm-hmm. You you will eat up more money trying to fix it. Trying to fix it. And it's so hard to make that determination. It is, isn't it? <laughs> with a car or with an IoT system. And we try our best to be to be compassionate in those situations, uh, to to be experts, to not be salespeople, to say, I think we can use this, or I think we can't. We can go about it this way and we can tie this in and, and keep this part of it and and do but we're gonna have to do away with this part over here. Or maybe Maybe in some cases, adjusting your goal from from way back is is justified and can lead to some good things. So maybe have another discussion about it. But doggone it, if your goal is what you need in order to make intelligent business-related decisions, that's what you should shoot for. As much as it pains everyone to do, you may have to just – you may have to just (laughs) close the door on that chunk it in the dumpster and say, okay, we're going to go about it again, but we're going to go about it again smarter. Uh, we're going to make sure we don't hear what we want to hear. 
Uh, we're going to make sure we don't repeat the things that we repeat. The cycle may need to take a little bit of time. You know, you may have you may have rushed into it. A lot of folks rushed into it. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need it. Let's get it done. We want it on this year's budget. We've got a little bit of money left, whatever. And let's, let's rush into this thing. And that might have been, you know, the situation where you begin to start making compromise after compromise after compromise. And all of a sudden you realize you've got a whole pile of compromise and it's, it's nowhere close to what you set out to do. But but the money's spent, and so yeah, that that's the thing. That's so the thing. when they close the book on that ch- chapter, and what do they need to look at? Yes, cybersecurity is the number one thing. Um, you know, a lot of folks are pushing for cloud-based solutions and things of that nature, and that doesn't necessarily meet with all the cybersecurity policies of IT today. Yeah. Now, the other interesting thing that we've, you know, cloud-based solutions, uh, when they first came out, were subscription-based, and some of them still are. And so that makes your initial investment more palatable. But it never goes away. That's right. (laughs) And so uh, what now the industry is saying is, when they look back, is cloud-based solutions are the highest and most costly of all solutions compared to hosted solutions. And the hosted, you put the money out up front. You have to buy the hardware and things of that nature. But hosted means that it's in your plant mm-hmm. and and you control it, which consequently is probably more secure. Uh, if it's on a cloud-based system, someone else is managing that server. You're renting server space from someone. And you're trusting that their cybersecurity requirements are such that the entire planet is able to see to see that uh, that they will stop the threats that they will preserve your data preserve anything that's confidential that's trade secret that kind of stuff and and then they won't be able to jump on the line and hack their way in from outside sources as we see a lot of systems going with on the onslaught of 3G uh, trying to do cellular based systems and a lot of those and I've Talked about this in past podcasts. Uh, a lot of those systems work to basically circumvent or bypass the IT uh, department, which means now there's a new vector coming in uh, that's a potential cyber security issue. Uh, I told, I've said in, in, in before, uh, a gentleman once told me, "There's no point in, in locking four doors if." You disregard the fifth door that's wide open. Uh, really, there's no no good point to doing that. And so, cellular-based systems, if not done correctly, provide avenues for ransomware. Mm-hmm. And, and in 2021, ransomware has been one of the the you know career choices. Yeah, I've seen uh, an acronym. It's uh, R-A-A-S, it's ransomware as a service or something yeah. like that. It's, it's yeah. gotten such a big business now. It's a huge business and and, and for the wrong people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, ransomware is a crime. If you're listening to this and you think that's cool, hacking into systems and ransoming systems and demanding money, that is illegal. And it's not something you need to aspire to do. Uh, but uh, cybersecurity is a very real thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's one of the things I think that it's it's according to what size, side of the, the coin you're on, whether it's IT or OT. Uh, but um, cybersecurity is met with differently on each side. For IT, cybersecurity is is top of their list. And for, unfortunately, OT, for us controls folks, we just don't want to deal with it. We'd rather just set all the passwords to default or remove all the passwords and, you know, use unmanaged switches on everything. Don't worry about firewalls or anything like that and just make it work. Yeah, that's right. Got to uh, get those, got to get the production out the get door. production out the door. <laughs> Integration cost is another thing to think about with IoT. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, again, they're sold a bill of goods. They're shown that dashboard that looks so, so appealing. And, and, and then they they don't delve into how are you going to get the data that makes up that dashboard? And when they find out that none of their systems on the floor are capable of giving that data or the system that they've been sold can't connect or talk to those products or those those items, be it PLCs, robots, CNCs, whatever, 
and then they're going to have to go out and get extra integration help to, or the data, or it can talk to it, but the data is not ready to be gotten. It's not ready to be cultivated, harvested from the PLCs and the machine controllers. Those kind of things are unexpected cost. Mm-hmm. And then generally lack of standards. I mean, if you've never done something, how can you have a standard? That's right. <laughs> Uh, there's been a lot more experience now, and so there's people out there like us that can help you manage and put together basic standards of things that you want to look. It doesn't need to be fantastic. And that's the other thing. So so many $200 billion, with a B, billion dollars, that means there's a lot of failed attempts out there. Yeah. There's a lot of successes, but there's probably just as many failed attempts, which means there is huge companies, and a lot of huge companies are in the middle of all that $200 billion, and they have produced standards. But those standards are so, so, so convoluted and complex, any SME is not going to be able to really – it's, it's going to be overwhelming. 300-page book of standards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so – you know, just working with somebody, again, if you're in our area, of course, with IoT, we work with folks all over the globe. You know, we can help you put together some of those base, just some, a few basic standards to look at and to shoot for. Uh, and one of those is is connectivity. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, you know, what are you going to do with your data and the what then analogy? Uh, you know, what then? You know, um, we didn't do a shout out to, to Lisa uh, Lisa Rector at uh, CSIA, but our last podcast was a crossover. Is that what we're called? Po- yeah. Crossover podcast. Uh, where their, their podcast is called Talking Industrial Automation. That's right. So if you want, I was to, a guest. Yes. If you want to check that out, go ahead. Talking mm-hmm. Industrial Automation with Lisa Rector and CSIA. Uh, and it's a great podcast that she does. And I was privileged to be uh, interviewed by her um, and kind of tell our story. We talked a lot about IoT because that's a lot of my background. Um, but one of the things that we uh, were kind of uh, – I was talking about was, you know, don't, don't be allowed to hear what you want to hear. And how you go about doing that is have them prove it. Mm-hmm. Show me. We talked about vision. Set it up. Even with our robots here, uh, we've got demonstration robot cells and things of that nature. Usually, we can test out the process. We actually have simulation software for our robots, but still, um, we you can get to the point of a warm fuzzy to know where all the pieces are coming from. But ask, show me, show me the the path. Show me where the data goes to get to that that, you know, speedometer needle or that graph or that bar chart. And then what are you going to do with it? The what then? Lisa and I talked a bit about that. What then? Um, and just keep what then until you peel the onion all the way down to the brass tacks of what you really need. And then go after that. Let that be your standard. Um, and then we talked about connectivity. Uh, that's That's so big. A lot of these systems... You know, we were one of the first ones, I think, to coin the const- the, the phrase uh, a machine EKG. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we were taking sensors uh, for machines that didn't have good connectivity capability or maybe made their legacy uh, products, things of that nature. And it just didn't make sense to buy a new machine just in order to see what's going on with your process. And so we got cre- we have been getting creative for since 2014 with ways to use specific sensors and things of that nature, feedback devices, flow controls, the whole nine yards, to see when a process is running or not running, to maybe even check when it's down, the downtime estimations, and those kind of KPIs, but also to kind of see if it's running the types of parts that you want. And and usually uh, with EKG method, we're we're taking outside sensors and we're putting them on EKG, meaning we're going to see what the heart's doing without actually cutting the person mm-hmm. open, and uh, and and so with condition monitoring sensors and things of that nature, that stuff comes out, and that's a big that that's a big trending trending uh, line item right there is machine condition monitoring AI, uh, and usually in the maintenance. Um, anticipating of having a, a maintenance or downtime monitoring type situation. And so how you utilize those sensors, though, don't hear what you want to hear. Have them show you. 
Because if it's going up to their cloud-based system and all this kind of stuff, if they're guaranteeing that they're going to monitor your system with their IoT stuff and they're going to guarantee you downtime and they're going to give you AI to say it's going to shut down and all this kind of stuff, ask them questions, hard questions. Yeah, I mean, the, the most apparent is, well, what if we do have a downtime event? Will you Are you going to pay for some of that? Is it like yeah. LifeLock where, you know, if you're a LifeLock member and, and something happens to you, we'll spend up to whatever, a million dollars yeah. or something to get your identity back and all this kind of stuff. I mean, are they making those kind of guarantees? And the answer is they're most likely not. The second thing is, what if that does serve as an avenue for rents and you get ransomed? Yeah. Are Who's you responsible? In some way? Who's responsible for that? If if you're entrusting them, they'll tell you. <laughs> is this secure? Why, well, yeah, it's secure. What's the next question? Well, you know how I know it's secure because it's on the sales the sales brochure. It says secure right here. Um, you know, you got to get you got to get your IT folks to to chime in on that. Yeah. And if they say I don't, we don't feel good about this, if they say you know it's secure, you can feel good about this. Okay, if something happens, what will you do about it? Yeah. If you bring if it if a ransomware situation occurs and it brings our plant to its knees and stops production, where are you going to be? And if the answer is crickets, don't go there. Yeah. If it unless you're comfortable that you can get yourself out of that and prepare for it. That'll be the new uh insurance thing if it's not already. <laughs> ransomware insurance. <laughs> there, yeah, there you go. Um <laughs> but no but you you've been saying you've said if anybody tells you it's 100% secure, walk away. Yeah. That's right. So how can there be insurance? Well, <laughs> it, the, the whole deal of insurance is they're, you're, you're betting it's going to happen and they're betting it won't. So. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I don't, think you can, I don't think you can make those kind of guarantees. And I think it's reckless for companies to do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, and I think any, any savvy IT person will tell you the same thing. There's, there is no such thing as totally secure. So I would say keep those in mind. IoT, uh, with your IoT, with your with your vision, with your automation projects, keep these things in mind. Uh, and and the goal, of course, of this podcast is for it not to be vague. In other words, make it be concise. Understand how it's going to work. You don't under, have to understand how to do it, but connect the dots. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't make sense, wait and ask the question. To this doesn't make sense to me. You're going to have to convince me of this one. Yeah, you know, this one or two things. And if it draws it out a little bit, let it draw it out. Don't rush in. That's right. And then work with a quality company, such as Elatech Incorporated. Absolutely. And uh, and let us help you and help empower you to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we'll go the distance with you. We're we're not gonna. Everybody loves for something to get started, but sometimes you need to take take some time, evaluate, reevaluate. Everybody gets happy with it. We prove what we can prove. Maybe you even need to do a paid feasibility study. Uh, it's better to spend you know a couple thousand dollars on a on a feasibility study or an engineering study to say yes, we think this will work, and here's all the reasons. Versus, I mean, when most companies like you know like us, we come out and we talk to our customers we have those kind of interactions and and we do our best to give a you know a quality proposal or estimate for something if, if we're selling them a system or selling them components or or even even uh, helping them implement things but if it's really critical it's better to spend a couple of thousand dollars and find out these are the things we still need to you know, nail down mm-hmm. before you just go ahead and hit the whole project cost on a hope that you'll get there. So, so do those kind of things and just take it, take it kind of slow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, if demonstrations are always a good way of showing things, mm-hmm. how things work. And if you want to have a, see a demo of a handwall collaborative robot or a vision system or the IOTA, we can do all three of those. Yeah. So our data logic vision systems, we get all that here. And, you know, certainly, certainly, I think, what's what's in there, an email? There is. It's free demo. Free demo at elitech.com. It's F-R-E-E-D-E-M-O at E-L-L-I-T-E-K.com. Yeah. Or just go to our website, uh, dot com. And then, of course, you can always do the old style thing. Everybody's back into, I was in a, 
I think a Target the other day and I was walking down the electronics aisle and there was all these iPods and Bluetooths and phones and all this kind of stuff. And then a whole wall of vinyl albums. Nice. <laughs> and, I, and I thought for just Avoid a second. Just I, a bit juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, I just went through a time warp uh, because there's all these vinyl albums. And so, so we seem to be getting back to some of the old stuff uh, in a couple of ways. So one of those is pick up the telephone right. and uh, call us at 865-409-1555. So, Oh, I failed to mention we do have some resources. Yeah, uh, the resource page on uh, our website. Yes, yeah. on Elatech's website, and I'll put uh, the link to that in the show notes. And that's a lot for uh, the industrial robots and collaborative robots. Yeah, so we'll build on that resource. We're we're building that resource. The, the uh, vision one we're going to build on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're again trying to trying to be uh, you know empowering and be true to mm-hmm. our to our mission statement. But uh, well, guys, thank you very much for season three, episode three. I will say this: keep the comments coming. Uh, we would ask that you would you know subscribe if you like what you hear uh, ring the bell hit the like button give us the five star rating according all according to the platform you're you're listening or watching us on and as always give us a, a holler an email uh, a call and uh, tell us about what you're dealing with if you got something that you'd like to hear us uh, kind of expound upon then certainly we'd love to do that absolutely. So. Beth? Yes, Brandon. We've rolled to the end. All right. Well, thank you for your expertise as always. Hopefully it wasn't too vague. (laughs) No, it wasn't. (laughs) Hey, if it was, you guys let us know. That's right. That's right. All right, Beth. Let's say goodbye to these folks. (laughs) See you later, Brandon. And everybody. (laughs) 